You are listening to the voice of Ahlus Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to Business Matters with me, your host, Alameen Templeton. Ah, well, it's the start of a new week, and uh, the RAND has retraced to some of its fantastic gains that it made last week uh, in the wake of uh, Moody's uh, foregoing to uh, bring the guillotine down on our necks. Uh, despite some negative comments in the wake of all of that by Goldman, no, sorry, it wasn't Goldman Sachs, it was Standard & Poor's. It's funny, I kind of tend to get those two mixed up. Standard & Poor's and Goldman Sachs is basically the same kind of company, isn't it? Uh, well, uh, no, let's not get nasty. Uh, but we must just point out that when, when um, the Lehman Brothers went down in 2008, uh, Goldman Sachs, um, no, uh, Standard & Poor's had given it a double A rating just days before. Um, Bear Stearns had just gone down in 2008 and a few days before it went down, Standard & Poor's had given a double A rating. Uh, AGI, the huge big international insurance conglomerate that went down, uh, brought down by uh, collateralized debt obligations that were all kinds of snaky kind of things in them, uh, low income housing packages, uh, little landmines sent all over the world. Uh, banks didn't know what they were holding in the wake of all of that. Uh, AGI was selling that all over the place, and they were selling them on the behalf of uh, Goldman Sachs. And Goldman Sachs, no, even, even uh, OCDs of Goldman Sachs wasn't selling it. It, it took out insurance on its own uh, collateralized debt obligations and other people's collateralized debt obligations just to make like a, a lot of profit out of it. And uh, and then what happened? Um, uh, AGI went down and uh, Larry Summers, who was then head of Treasury, uh, former chief executive of Goldman Sachs, uh, who had put together the, uh, the actual legislation that uh, ensured that uh, collateralized debt obligations could be sold in the first place, uh, who knew everything about what was going on. Uh, he called AGI in and insisted that they pay out Goldman Sachs on 100 cents in the dollar. Fool! Full recompense uh, from a company that just declared bankruptcy. Can you imagine it? And Goldman Sachs got its money as well. Yeah, those guys know how to make their money. Mm, okay, well, there you go. Your little bit of uh, economic history uh, for today. It's amazing now. That kind of stuff is now economic history rather than um, contemporaneous uh, economics. It's funny, uh, you know, back in 2006, 2007, how uh, controversial all of that was. And now it's kind of like, you know, everyone pretends that they knew it was going to happen all the time. Oh, well, okay, well, let's go and have our tail of the tape. Uh, ShareNet uh, website today uh, showing that the four most watched shares on the JSE, the usual suspects, EOH, <coughs> has got its results coming out tomorrow. Uh, people are worried. It says it's going to be down. <coughs> It lost its contract uh, to sell Microsoft products uh, earlier this year in February when uh, it, were, it was found that they had actually bribed um, government officials in order to get a defense contract. AOH says they're now revising all of their contract dealings and negotiation practices. Uh, they say everything is fine and they fired all the guys that were guilty. Uh, but nevertheless, they expect a knock. And nevertheless, today, its share price is 14% up. That may well be that, I guess, people uh, on the JSC are kind of like betting that in actual fact, uh, the share price had been far too depressed by the news that uh, led up to its results, which are out tomorrow. And that means with the results come out tomorrow, the share price should in actual fact recover. 
and so they'll be able to sell it a profit. So, well, anyway, good luck to them. Let's see if they're right or not. Well, actually, I shouldn't say good luck to them because that's just a speculative um, speculative buying. You're not in actual fact investing uh, for the good and the bad, as you're supposed to do as a Muslim. Uh, so you must be very careful, you know. As you're a Muslim, you want to go into the JSE. You'll see all of the other guys doing all kinds of things. Just because they do that doesn't mean it's okay for you to do it. You must know why you're there. If you want to go and get involved in the JSE, you must know why you're there and you must know what you're doing. Uh, Steinhoff is in second place, second most watched share today on the JSE. Uh, of course, also then for all the wrong reasons, it's uh, been basically uh, been giving out um, special uh, voting rights and so on to conformer shareholders uh, in uh, Europe where they're busy trying to raise some money. Uh, so anyway, everyone's having a look at that and wondering, oh, are we ever going to get any money out of Steinhoff? I guess uh, the Dutch prosecutors, though, our hope has got to be with the Dutch prosecutors because the Hawks over one year only managed to investigate one trade. Can you imagine it? And then they discovered there were another 10. <laughs> There's more than another 10. There's another 10,000 shares they have to investigate. But hopefully the Dutch prosecutors have made more progress than our ham-fisted Hawks. Uh, we're not hearing much out of the weekly report backs they're supposed to be giving uh, to Parliament's Oversight Committee. Um, but uh, anyway, maybe maybe things will turn around there. Um, of course, the Hawks were saying, but we wait for PWC's report. Then PWC's report comes out and it says, well, you know, they didn't maintain the correct uh, auditing standards. Uh, they didn't say they were engaged in theft and fraud and all kinds of money laundering and so on. Um, a very watered-down kind of report coming out of PwC. Um, and again, underscoring uh, criticisms of these behemoths of uh, the accounting world. Um, should accounting firms be allowed to get so big? Should there be a cap on the size of accounting firm or the amount of clients that they're allowed to have? A, a, a lot more oversight is needed there because, I mean, uh, I, I cast my mind back to... 1993, when the Nail Commission uh, investigation into Masterbond came out, and uh, it found that uh, that uh, Ernst and Young's uh, behaviour in uh, the course of uh, the Masterbond saga had been atrocious, had very actively uh, colluded with management in order to defraud pensioners of more than 600 million rands, and that was back in the 1990s where the rands was actually still something. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I can remember I, I wrote an article on it and I was hauled in by the um, South African uh, accounting uh, guy, Saki. And uh, they wanted to know from me, are you serious about this? You want to bring all kinds of other people onto uh, who uh, the accountants must report to, who are the shareholders in a firm. It's not just people to hold the shares. Uh, it was argued it's the workers, it's the trade unions, it's the community, uh, you know. So, uh, and uh, you still have that kind of discussion going on everywhere around the world, but not really much being done about it. Uh, fortunately, today we've got an interesting guest on the line, uh, Professor Patrick Bond from Wits University. He's an economics professor and a very clever guy. 
Well, you uh, will recall recently <coughs> we mentioned uh, that ESCOM had been given an $180 million cash injection. Cash injection. They, they use these very nice words, don't they? A cash injection. Sounds like I've got a whole lot of vitamin C in my blood from the New Development Bank to fund the integration of renewable energy into the grid. What do they come with these stories? It's amazing. We've heard several explanations as to what this loan is all about. Uh, it's to fund the integration of the renewable energy into the grid. Oh, that sounds really nice. But a few days before that, they said, no, it's uh, to fund the desulfurization equipment at Madupi. Uh, now, the other people are saying, no, it's to augment transmission projects. A lot of smoke and mirrors around what amounts to, again, another international loan for ESCOM. There was an even more controversial loan back in 2010. And on the line now, we are joined by Professor Patrick Bond, uh, who's going to explain in detail just what is wrong with these loans and where the heck is ESCOM taking us. Uh, good evening, Professor. How are you? Hello? I'm, I'm hearing you fine. Oh, hi, Professor. Hi, Professor. How are you? Great. Yes, just call me Patrick. It's great to be with you and the listeners. And it's uh, a very good intro because, as you say, Alex, uh, on uh, 2010, uh, around April uh, 7th that year, mm. after a, a four or five months of battle, the World Bank uh, made its largest ever project loan, $3.75 billion, around about 52 billion rand. Mm. And it was from Madupi. And they did so after this campaign against the loan by a wide variety that ranged from uh, grassroots groups. It actually began in South Durban with the uh, South Durban Community Environmental Alliance, yeah. with Earth Life Africa, with Groundwork. And then it even caught up the DA and the Business Day. And so really a wide cross-section of society said, why are you making the biggest ever loan for a coal-fired power plant at a time climate change was beginning to get onto the World Bank radar, but particularly because Hitachi had bribed the ANC through the uh, uh, investment vehicle Chancellor House mm -hmm. of our ruling party, the African National Congress. Yeah. And that was out in the open. And in fact, the public protector had already told the chair of ESCOM, who was on the ANC Finance Committee, you remember his name perhaps, Vali Musa. Mm. He was also international IUCN president. So he's kind of a big weight. Yeah, and, um, so when he was, in a sense, overturning a prior uh, bid to do the boilers, and these are contracts worth uh, over 50 billion rand, mm -hmm. this was a big controversy, and it began to be clear that it was, in effect, a bribe. Um, this is not controversial to allege because the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in the United States was uh, used to prosecute Hitachi, and they had an out-of-court settlement for about 280 million rand, 19 million dollars. So this is not even a controversy that, if I say, Madupi is corruption-riddled, um, a, a plant that was supposed to cost um, 65 billion rand in total, and it went up, now it's over 200 billion. Yeah. And indeed, the, the public protectors found about 140 billion rand of, of corruption. So, yeah, we're, we're talking about... Um, at the uh, exchange rate of around 14 rand to the dollar, um, uh, really about $20 billion uh, of corruption associated with both Madupi and the partner, uh, coal-fired power plant. That's dollars, so, that's dollars corruption. That, uh, well, the dollars, I'd say the, the total corruption is in the range of about 
yeah, 18 to 20 billion. And that's going to be for ESCOM carrying now uh, a, a, a total debt of 420 billion, yeah. or around about 30 billion dollars. Um, it's very important to get the World Bank to cancel that loan. And ironically, just last week, last Monday, the new World Bank president began his job. His name, David Malpass. And what we know of him is that he's a fool. He uh, was uh, the chief economist at Bear Stearns, mm. the big investment bank in February 28, uh, 2008. Uh, it went uh, bankrupt. We just and, mentioned uh, them. We just mentioned them in charge of the show. Yeah, scoundrels, right? Real <laughs> yes. banksters. And, mm. um, and the chief economist, uh, uh, had, uh, his name is David Malpass, comes out of also Arthur Anderson. You know, he's been in all the... Oh, uh, yeah, with the Enron uh, and all of that as well. So um, this this guy actually had written a Wall Street Journal article saying everything's fine, the world credit markets are great. So he's a foolish man. Mm. However, sometimes he gets it right. And in 2017, he testified to the United States uh, House of Representatives Financial Services Committee. It's online. You can, you know, listeners can check it out. It's quite interesting. Mm. Uh, and, and he says the World Bank is always making loans where uh, they fly people first class to countries and they make uh, corrupt deals and then this benefits never trickle down to ordinary people. He just described Madupi. And then Maxine yeah. Waters, the, the representative who was running that committee, said, um, can you give us some examples? Uh, do you have any? And, and he said South Africa. Uh, and it's, obviously this is Madupi because it was the biggest by far. Nothing comes close. Yeah. Now that to me is the grounds for what is often called odious debt in the mm. international legal terminology, a loan that just shouldn't have been made. It wasn't done with any participation. It's like our e-tolls here in Johannesburg, where they just kind of dumped them on people, and, and people rejected them, and the Austrian company involved, and the, the parastatal are uh, having to dismantle them now. These are the kinds of um, disciplines from below that I think this uh, government we have is desperately in need of much more of an odious debt. The BRICS bank that you also mentioned, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa uh, bank, made its first loan to... Brian Molefe, the chair of ESCOM, who had to resign in a, in a absolutely humiliating uh, corruption mm. uh, riddle uh, incident with the family called the Guptas, right? Yeah, the another sad litany. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And so from there you go to the BRICS Bank loans. Indeed, you listed some of the sort of bizarre, uh, let me call them environmental fig leaves on mm. these loans to corrupt companies. I'll, I'll just give you two others very quickly. One to ESCOM for uh, lending for Soweto's electricity restructuring. And the people oh. in Soweto, 85% <laughs> are not paying because ESCOM has screwed up yes, their bills exactly. and their services. And, mm. and I know those activists very well. And they have a lot of integrity. And, and if, mm. if the Briggs Bank uh, is trying to lend in Soweto, they've picked a fight with the wrong people. The second, um, Al, is in Transnet uh, digging of the Durban Harbor. It's only about um, 9, 10 meters, and, and now with these huge ships, Post Panamax is their name because they carry more than the number of containers, 5,000, that would comfortably fit through the Panama Canal mm. uh, before it was recently um, increased. So now we're getting in Durban, much bigger ships, but they can only come in half full at high tide. So they need to dig deeper, and they're mm. building up the port. Unfortunately, they've chosen people I can name, you know, the name is an Italian company, but... Interestingly, in South Africa, the name is Sean Impasani, who is part of the deal. And of course, that was corrupt. She's yeah. the most notorious character in Durban. Mm. And within three months, last November, within three months of this loan 
having been turned into an actual contract for this Italian-led construction team to deepen the urban port, they had to cancel it. That's Paulo Sullivan, a well-known whistleblower. Yes, yes. So in that sense, we've got a very interesting um, track record for the BRICS Bank. So the South Durban leader, uh, Desmond Dessau, famous activist who won the Goldman Prize, the sort of Nobel Prize of environment. He was my tutor at university in sociology. Is that a fact? Yeah, but, <laughs> yes. uh, no, 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 you're thinking of Ashwin Dessau. Oh, yes, Ashwin. I thought you said Ashwin, uh, sorry. Yes, no, and Desmond, who's oh, right. even more of a maniacal activist than mm. Ashwin, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, is my co-author on a couple of books about oh, really? that we're, oh. we're putting out this year. Oh, but, yeah. but Desmond has been writing with myself to the compliance officer at the BRICS Bank mm. to say, what's going on? Why are you just completely corrupt from day one? And mm. they say, sorry, we have no compliance. Basically. Uh, I can share the, the correspondence. It's one of those shocking things where we'd wanted this new BRICS institution to offer alternatives to be um, different, more transparent, less corrupt, more environmentally conscious, more community-oriented, lending in local currencies. Every, every loan so far has been in U.S. dollars, yeah. you know, the, the activities are really basically just uh, digging uh, ports. You know, you don't really need much in the way of imports for that. Um, the extension of electricity transmission lines, mm. basically all the local steel and labor. So in all of these respects, we find this BRICS bank uh, to be uh, full of charlatans. And um, even the, the vice president that South Africa has, has put in, uh, Leslie Mastrop, who had been at Goldman Sachs, mm. been at Bank of America, he'd been at uh, the privatization office, he'd been at the Lesotho Highlands Water Project when they were completely uh, confounded with corruption. Mm-hmm. This is not the best put forward from uh, South Africa and certainly not for the BRICS. It makes them look not like um, an alternative but an amplifier. Yeah, uh, very much it's like the same story being written over again. It is, and the tragedy is that we've got um, in the BRICS now, uh, two proto-fascist leaders uh, from 2014, Narendra Modi, and then from January, Jair Bolsonaro, and Bolsonaro has just chosen the chair of the BRICS Bank. Yeah, how does it's, it's like stepping into quicksand? You think it looks or it looks perfectly fine? Next moment, you're knee deep in all kinds of stuff. And in fact, if if your listeners know the Daily Maverick e-zine, and mm. you'll have seen perhaps. Uh, one of their better journalists, uh, Kevin Bloom, writing about this last week. And he mentioned that we had some uh, visitors from the other BRICS countries to, to do watchdogging. And this is one of those moments where um, the South African capacity to watchdog these scammers is critical. And we've shown it with Bell Pottinger. You can watchdog them and give companies like that the corporate death sentence, right? That's what they deserve. And Bell Pottinger got it. KPMG with its nickname here. The wedding planners, they've been disinvested by all kinds of local clients. McKinsey, apologies, down on its knees. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're talking about major international corporations, the South African civil society, our general citizenry, opposition parties are saying, get the hell out of here. What are you doing in league with the Guptas, the, the Sasas, the ANC leaders who are just rotten with corruption? And I think we need to do that with the BRICS Bank. Mm. as well. It, it has given us every indication that they're uh, as bad as you get. Um, do you find it also strange, a new development bank coming up with all the reasons why it's given this loan? 
uh, very, very much kind of like following the same kind of pattern as the World Bank loan. No, no, it's going to be um, for clean air. It's going to be to scrub uh, the the um, the sulphur out of out of the air. It's going to be yes, well, integrating it, it, the renewable energy into the grid. You know, you throw a green label at it, and then uh, you go and do whatever you like, uh, hiding behind that label. Precisely, it's it's greenwashing. It's a fig leaf. Yeah, there you uh, go. Very nice too. <laughs> and and indeed, what when we've been raising this kind of critique, particularly because um, it's just another funnel to put money into an ESCOM which keeps building coal-fired plants and really has no agenda for, especially ordinary people's access to cheaper renewable electricity with, with good battery storage, with you know um, local socially controlled and worker self-managed. Electricity, the kind of thing that even though our metal workers, NUMSA, mm. are opposed to the privatized electricity, they would support that. And we desperately need to move in that direction. And this is where the BRICS Bank is simply in league with this uh, crew at the, at the top of ESCOM who have no agenda uh, for cleaning up their act. And therefore, Madupi, which is only half built right now, and if only the half of it that's built is only half effective, and mm. Sile is far from being built. Yes. These are plants that I think probably should be shut down, as even ESCOM's chair, Jabal Mabuza, uh, hinted uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yes, yes. The, the, the board was actually discussing money. that very issue. Uh, well, I think it was, it was something like uh, 18 billion rand each, 36 That's billion right. rand in total. Yeah, well, too. well, well uh, in fact, the, the totals are coming into 220 billion rand each. Uh, and, and so what we're talking about, in a way, is Stop throwing. Yes, you're right. Um, that that's what they say is needs to finish mm. them. But you know, when you get when you get operations that are so dysfunctional, where they can't run the boiler um, uh, and and basically eat up the, the uh, production of electricity, otherwise they overheat. Yeah. And then we don't have any water for them. I mean, the Waterberg has got a few streams, uh, <laughs> Waterberg, but it really has not anything like the kind of coolant. That are required. You have to actually import the water all the way from the Sutu. So, so the site was, in actual fact, uh, a non starter from the beginning then, because I can't see. How much is it going to cost to get water from the Lesotho Highlands Water Project to Madhubi? And that, that precisely is the next loan from the BRICS Bank. And unfortunately, the corruption that began uh, in the late 1990s, in which one of the key people, his name is Masuka Sole, mm. from the Lesotho Highlands Water Project, the Trans-Caledon Tunnel Authority, mm. to be precise. Yes. He was put into jail for um, nine years for uh, massive corruption associated with a dozen major construction companies. One of them, called Acres, was actually put to sleep. It, it was also like Bell Pottinger, mm. given the corporate death sentence for corruption. It was really one of the, the, the most important corruption cases ever. Well, guess who's back? It's the Lesotho government main um, envoy. Go to guy. Same guy, Masuka Sole. He's, back, he's been back there about three years. This is a sort of um, systematic corruption at the top that gives um, all of these mega projects such a bad name. I can, remember, I, I can remember at the time of the Lesotho Highlands Water Project, the whole lot of construction companies that were named, they were supposed to be removed from the lists of uh, bidding for government contracts around the world. The World Trade Organization, the World Bank, the IMF, they're all going to keep a, like a watch list of construction companies caught up in corruption and government contracts. So what happened to all of that then? Well, exactly that um, uh, process of, of it's actually called debarring, mm. B-A-R, began with the Lesotho Highlands Water Project. Yes. So they, they knocked out one or two for for uh, appearance's sake. The biggest one mm. is uh, called ADB. It's the biggest 
construction company in the world, so they get off the hook because it's so big, you know, too big to fail. Yeah. But then, guess what happens at the World Bank? They've then got so much corruption in these big projects, it's coming to light, that they hire a vice president for integrity, vice president integrity. But guess who gets the job? It's 2008. Somebody in this country needs John a job. John Bolton. What? No, you're close. <laughs> Name's <laughs> Leonard McCarthy. You remember Spike Yes, Leonard yes, McCarthy, yeah. He ended up Scorpion. there. Oh, really? He was, and, and it gets better than uh, in, in a moment, Al. Just to remind you that in 2008, there was still a finance minister, Trevor Manuel, who was thought to be, you know, maybe World Bank presidential material, mm. if they were ever to allow a non-European to take yeah. the, the job of head of IMF or a non-American to take the head of the World Bank. And the point is that Leonard McCarthy needed a quick escape route in 2008, as it all began to fall apart, as Zuma came in, mm. as he failed to use his knowledge of the 783 counts of corruption against Zuma, as um, in 2009, of course, those uh, spy tapes with uh, uh, Lali and Kulka meant that Zuma was sort of off the hook, uh, according to the prosecutors here. And all of this was such a mess. So it turns out Leonard McCarthy just got away and got this top vice presidency at the World Bank. Then Musi Maimani, the head of the DA, mm. asks him, it's all in writing, says, wait a minute, the United States Securities and Exchange Commission just fined Hitachi $19 million for corrupting us. But you, the World Bank, were part of this. Don't you think you need to do something about Hitachi and corruption and debar them to answer your question? And what did Leonard McCarthy say? Nope, sorry, it's just not our part of the loan. In other words, he found a, a completely comical yeah, yeah. way to say it's not our business. <laughs> yeah. And in a way, when you think of our failure on the Lesotho Dam, mm. who also have South African co uh, prosecution of our own construction company, you know, they had all these dead ducks that were part of it, and also to fail to prosecute Hitachi for corrupting our government through um, the Chancellor House. It just shows that our leadership so rotten the corruption they cannot turn the mirror inward. It just it would shatter uh, with, with a complete destructive force that would take too many people out. It just means we've got to work much, much harder. Uh, we don't really have a new Ramaphosa government, do we? We've got a Ramazupta situation. And people are saying something. Yeah, of way too many of the same characters rolling themselves through institutions, uh, whether they be BRICS banks, uh, whether they be you know uh, top government uh, positions or the parastatals especially. We think with someone like Popo Malefe, as the chair of Transnet, uh, that we're going to solve the problem because he hasn't been tainted. But on the other hand, he, he had the biggest loan ever to deal with, which was Transnet through Brian Malefe when he was in the head, mm. getting $5 billion from the China Development Bank. And what was that for? For the China South Rail provision is a thousand locomotives. And those locomotives had big kickbacks to the Guptas through Salim Issa. Connect all the dots here. Unfortunately, Pope Malefe a couple of months ago gets angry because uh, China South Rail isn't giving us um, uh, locomotives. We don't need so many. Mm. In fact, the main reason for them is to export coal from the Waterberg down to Richards Bay, the biggest single project in the country, 800 billion rand. So Pope Malefe goes, and already we've had about 40 billion rand in contract commitments on this $5 billion loan from China Development Bank to China South Rail, Malefe can only get $680 million back. It's so pathetic. So we've really got to keep the watchdogging going because I fear that, you know, after we've, we've 
you've seen a sort of year of Ramaphosa, it's pretty evident that he needs a big left flank of critics in society mm. because we can't trust him to, uh, to, to, to run serious anti-corruption. I, I would say Ramaphosa himself implicated in things like the illicit financial flows of lawmen, the Bermuda, 1.4 billion rand, billions in um, uh, illicit financial flows mm-hmm. from MTN. Uh, even the Nigerians have been able to catch them on, I mean, they make exaggerated claims, but, but MTN stayed fine. And then even Shanduka, one of course, is on company with illicit financial flows to Mauritius, um, caught in the Paradise Papers about a year and a half ago. Yes. This is an indication that the uh, Ramaphoria, the Ramaphusias, really aren't looking, uh, uh, you know, uh, under the hood. They're just accepting the shiny vehicle that, in fact, is the Skorokoro in terms of fighting corruption. Yeah, sometimes, uh, sometimes the shine is all you have. <laughs> Um, what kind of um, uh, good outcomes do you see for something like a Jubilee project to try and uh, recover this money? Well, the main Jubilee, if, if you have uh, religious listeners who've got the sense of the... Uh, we have a few. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the old Leviticus, the kind of crazy part of the Bible. Every yeah. seven years you've got to kind of have a, mm. have a, a, a jubilee. live fellow, right. And so you put seven of those seven years, that's 49 years, and a very good movement led by Njim Kunkulu and Bengani, who was the Archbishop of uh, Cape Town, mm. taking over from uh, Archbishop Tutu, and Dennis Brutus, a uh, late uh, poet, a fantastic, yeah. uh, brilliant activist against apartheid and injustice. And they ran uh, the Jubilee movement with uh, very good staff and allies in the early 2000s. Unfortunately, they had a guy they were appealing to, to say, please uh, rethink the payment of the apartheid debt, rethink the stance uh, towards these big companies that made profits. And that was Pablo Mbeki, and he just completely blew them off. I saw that. Up, up yeah, yeah. Uh, repeatedly, the government, the South African government, intervened to, to block the Jubilee process. Exactly. And it was the most frustrating thing for uh, for wonderful leaders like uh, John Bolton and Dan Brutus. So, the discussion that, in fact, was happening in Cape Town over the last couple of weeks about odious debt and about um, the ways in which uh, you can legitimately make claims and also scare off lenders by saying, look, these loans that our government is contracting have not gone through a proper process. We mm. need a parliamentary process, but we need consultation with the society. And we have a, a very fine group called the Committee to Abolish Illegitimate Debt based in Brussels. And yeah. the leader, Eric uh, Toussaint, uh, a very uh, uh, kind of world-class intellectual has been in Cape Town based at Alternative Information Development Center, AIDC.org.za. So they're probably reviving this question of the massive debt. I might tell your listeners they'll be surprised. We, we often talk about the public debt, which is usually the um, internal domestic debt of the South African government. The South African government is a small foreign debt. But the really big problem is not that. It's the foreign debt, the parastatal Yes, that's it, that's it. And it's $182 billion, the Reserve Bank quarterly bulletin that was just released last month shows us. And that, if you compare historically, it's unprecedented. Do you remember Mm. there was a terrible moment, P.W. Borta shook his finger in in the so-called Rubicon Rubicon speech in Durban City Hall in August 1985, and he was so out of touch that the world financier said, this man is crazy, and the anti-apartheid movement said that uh, 
start to run on these banks, Barclays, Chase Manhattan. And those banks said, sorry, PW, sorry, Baron Duplessis, the finance minister, you've got to pay us back. And that caused the debt crisis. It caused Porter and Duplessis to default. Mm. And at the time, that caused, in turn, Anglo-American leader Gavin Rally to go up to try to meet um, or Tambo in, in Zambia, and they, they had a, the beginnings really of the end of apartheid were in August, September 1985. At that point, our foreign debt was 41% of GDP. We're now at 52. So we're higher in the level of sort of desperation, which is why even last January, a year and three months ago, uh, ESCOM nearly couldn't pay its World Bank loan, and that would have triggered a mass default. Uh, we could go to the IMF. There's something in the BRICS called the Contingent Reserve Arrangement. But, you know, that's the kind of desperation that puts you in such a bad nick. We're already paying, by the way, our fourth highest interest rate in the world mm. amongst the countries that issue 10-year bonds. There are about 50 countries. And of those, only Venezuela, um, which is just around the same as us, and Turkey, which is a bit higher, and Argentina, a little bit higher, they pay higher interest rates in a way penalty for being, you know, on the edge of default, junk yeah. um, and we're right up there. And I think we've really got to be questioning what is the character of the foreign debt? Why are we borrowing so much quarter on quarter to repay the earlier debt, but also to pay foreign corporations to export profits? And by but that, Anglo-American, Patrick, years old mutual. What's a what's a problem there? Don't don't South African banks have a lot of money? I mean, during apartheid, we built up like a huge big wall chest of of, of local savings. Absolutely, don't you know, we have the biggest um, savings uh, in world history in the mm. form of the JSE. Now, don't take it from me. You've heard of Warren Buffett. The Warren Buffett indicator, Buffett indicator, is the uh, market capitalization for the stock market as a share of GDP. We're about 370%. It's never been higher in world history. Mm. Uh, the, the sort of world level right now is about 130%, and which is also unprecedented high. So we're in a world situation where there's way too much savings, but it's in a casino. The JSC's uh, um, capitalization, again, just by any ordinary measure, Buffett indicator, suggests that our corporates and our bankers uh, and my pension fund managers mm. have just been sloshing all of our liquid funds into the stock market and building a bubble instead of reinvesting in the society because our growth fixed investment. You know, the plant, equipment, machinery, yes. that's at a record low. We're, we're at about 17% private sector, uh, barely doing uh, wear and tear. In other words, no new net investment. Really. So they're, they're not spending the money on bricks and mortar? On, on, on they're putting it into a JSC, yeah. which is bubbling up. It's still at the 58,000 mark, very, very high in relation to the, to the real economy. And they're also putting it into interest-bearing assets. And, you know, we're all paying mortgage bonds and car loans, student loans. We're paying loans that are at incredibly high interest rates yeah. in relation to the size of the economy. Now, in order to get the interest rate lower, in order to rethink the outflow of profits that go to London, the Anglo, De Beers, Old Mutual, uh, F.A.D. Miller, now Anheuser Bush, these big, big companies that ran away, um, you have to do something that is very um, controversial. These two words I'm going to say never are allowed up for discussion in mainstream discussion. The two words are exchange control. Yeah. That means making sure that the money stays in the country. Yeah. If you say, but Patrick, 
those two words are so controversial, you can't say them because they're obviously the source of awful, awful destruction. I would say, no, no, Alex, the opposite. Yeah, look at Malaysia in the, in the wake of the, uh, the Asian flu. Precisely. It was in September 98 when there was a run on the Malaysian currency. Mm. In fact, it's now the same president, Mahathir Mohammed, mm. in power again. And he was able to stop run by putting on exchange controls. But even uh, our own example, just 11 years ago when we had a terrible world financial meltdown, yeah. it was because we had um, 85% um, requirement on our uh, pension funds, our insurance companies, our what's called institutional investors today, it's a pool of 10 trillion rand. Mm. And 85% of that had to be invested. And you can ask everyone from Brian Cantor to Johan Rupert all the way to the left to Jeremy Cronin, yeah. all are on record saying, Thank goodness we had exchange controls <laughs> that kept the money in the country. Otherwise, our bankers would be gambling abroad. And the tragedy is since then, we've liberalized and we've gone down from 85 to 70. So any of your listeners who might be, you know, investors, institutional managers, they're licking their lips because they know they can just take out of every rand we give them 30 cents and put it into some other casino. <laughs> yeah. The problem is those casinos go bankrupt faster than ours and With this liberalization, we're much more vulnerable to another bout, about which I think is coming sometime soon, of world financial turmoil. And so I would love a discussion of those two dirty words, exchange controls, because these guys, including our president, Cyril Ramaphosa, have abused exchange controls. They have illicit financial flows of around 250 billion rand a year over the past decade or so, according to global financial integrity. Hey, that's money that we desperately need to be circulating to lower the interest rate to get investment going here. Patrick, I'd, I'd actually love to discuss that issue with you. Maybe we can maybe we can get onto that issue in, um, uh, maybe next week or the week after. Um, and, 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 and maybe in, in relation to, could South Africa do quantitative easing? And I would do it in a less quantitative way going to the banks, the way the Federal Reserve did. Yeah. Uh, and a more qualitative way going to ordinary people because yes. um, if, we, if we could have a, um, a debt Uh, holiday of forgiveness on some of these crazy loans. You know, we had a company called CPS Net One, whose major investor, by the way, was the World Bank, mm. uh, 22% in, in Serge Belamonte's civil operation. Well, then they put their fingers deep into the pockets of the poorest South Africans. 17 million uh, grants go out every month, and about 13 million go for children. And yet five-year-old children getting microfinance, getting cell phone contracts, because Serge Belamonte's CPS Net One was popping um, those poor people with loans and uh, mm. debit orders, and we had to eventually throw them out because Black Sash and the victims were raising uh, uh, hell about it. So yeah. that's the kind of discussion we needed to say, what can be done to um, discipline these wilding financiers before they uh, create such enormous chaos? Uh, and I think, uh, you know, you, you get very little discussion. You get people in daily life defaulting on their debts, Uh, blacklisted mm -hmm. in a miserable situation where the repo man, the repossession men are coming around, uh, credit, uh, you know, the debt collectors. And I think we've really got to confront that and have an open discussion in society. Why do we let the financial system go out of control? Why did the 17 banks that were ripping off South Africans through currency manipulation were never regulated by the Reserve Bank and the Treasury? And why doesn't Business Day write about it? <laughs> Because they're caught up right, right within it. Competition Commission is our last hope to have some discipline. Because I'd say if, if the 
the question is, why is a business state, a treasury, and a reserve bank all, let me call them, state captured by three brothers? I don't mean the ones in Saxon Wall. Mm. I don't mean the, the, the Watsons. I mean the three brothers in New York City, Standard & Poor's, Fitch & Moody. Those yeah. guys have really captured so much of our policy, and that makes it you know, subject to the winds of, of world finance. It means, um, I think, we, we def- def- desperately need uh, this kind of discussion about whether more sanity can be returned to uh, regulation of banks. And, yeah. uh, and that has to come from below. Well, uh, well, I was just reminding our listeners at the beginning of the show, as we started that, uh, to Goldman Sachs and the, the ratings agencies that rated Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers as AA just days before they went down. AGI was AAA rated, and um, and uh, I think it was Lawrence Summers uh, insisted uh, that they pay 100 cents in the in the dollar to uh, Goldman Sachs for the insurance on, on the very collateralized debt obligations <laughs> that Goldman Sachs had sold to their own clients, and they bet against them and in the insurance. And then they, they the w- got their... And, and Goldman just got caught again in Malaysia um, in the last few months for mm. doing the biggest gamble yeah, ever RMB1. in the government. The one, that's right. And I think the thing here is you've got a very smart guy running Goldman named Colin Coleman. comes from an anti-apartheid family, Matt Coleman and, and yes. Audrey Coleman and the brothers leading trade units. You know, it's a, it's a very interesting family, but it's so sad uh, that the Goldman Sachs can say what they like about the way things should work here without... Um, society raising the question, aren't you the same characters who wrecked the world economy just 11 years ago? Yeah. Have we really forgotten your role? Why do you have any legitimacy to say anything at all? Because the government keeps on appointing them. It's true, and it's an ideology. It's, it's an ideology of, of uh, neoliberalism, of big corporate. And I, it's really time we, we got back to uh, the, the old Keynesian approach. John Maynard Keynes had such... Um, a, a different perspective, a perspective that sometimes he said, as for the rentiers, the only solution is euthanasia. In other words, you've really got to put um, financial repression, another phrase he used. Mm. That's why we need exchange controls. He said uh, that's the single most important thing you can do for economic management is exchange controls. Sure. Okay. Patrick, uh, thank you very much for your time and for, uh, for sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, it's been most illuminating. Uh, God willing, uh, in maybe next week or the week after, we can, we can have that discussion on exchange controls. I'd actually love to, I'd actually love to do that. We'll, we'll make do it. That. Let's, let's have a debate. Yes. See somebody from the bank who, who would have a heart attack and that would be good to uh, yes. experience to have a good debate with him. Yeah. Thank you so much, Al. Great, thank you very much. That's Professor Patrick Bond of Wits University. Uh, yeah, given us uh, uh, a lowdown, if that's possible, on ESCOM and uh, the World Bank and the New Development Bank, that's the BRICS banks, uh, cash loans to them, more money, threatening to leave our, our country. We're sitting on a huge cash pile here, uh, distance between government and the corporate sector. You can say justified, unjustified. Nevertheless, we've got a huge, big yawning chasm between our corporate sector and our government. Uh, that distrust has always been there. That element of distrust has always been there since 1994. It's something that we've never really managed to banish. And uh, that credibility gap between government and the corporate sector 
is something that continues to hurt this country. If you consider that uh, the United States will go to war over bananas, uh, you go and uh, look up the United Fruit Company. Uh, go Google the United Fruit Company. Go and find out what America, the United States, is willing to do for bananas, let alone something far more strategic like oil. Uh, really, uh, the entire entire nations in South America have been decimated. That means reduced by one tenth uh, by America's policies. Uh, very often, uh, you know, uh, to bolster the price of bananas or um, to ensure that they have a steady rubber supply. It really is quite shocking. Uh, the things that people are, are willing to ignore in uh, the interests of chasing after the mighty dollar. Uh, well, uh, that's almost brought us to the end of the show today. Uh, the JSE uh, finished 14.02 to the greenback this afternoon. Uh, Peregrine uh, Treasury Solutions uh, says the RAND is trapped in a very tight range. The market's risk has been driven by an upbeat start of the U.S. earnings season, uh, with, while positive signs from the Chinese economy are also assisting the RAND. Oh, well, uh, you know, um, I kind of like felt that uh, the wire services had been priming the markets um, to, uh, to uh, have a good outlook on America by saying, yeah, our banking stocks are going to be uh, reporting. And now the banks have come out, you know, they're just sitting there with $5.5 trillion worth of quantitative easing, $1.3 trillion worth of top that has come their way in the last decade. I mean, how, how could they else not be anything but extremely healthy? Uh, so, yeah, that's boosted uh, the uh, the world markets today uh, uh, slightly. Positive signs from uh, the Chinese economy uh, also coming through. Um, the futures uh, 500, uh, the S&P 500 fluctuated as Goldman Sachs paid gains in the pre-market of the missing estimates for sales and trading revenue. I'm always glad when I hear Goldman Sachs has been doing badly. Um, in Asia, equities advanced a fresh, to a fresh six-month high, propelled by markets in Japan, Korea. That's after the Bank of Japan released upbeat credit data. Uh, Chinese trade and leading data showing signs of improvement uh, for the world's second biggest economy. Investors are turning to U.S. earnings season confirm the resilience of corporate America in the face of numerous challenges and growth. J.P. Morgan Chase, yes, yes, that's um, the, the, the same company that went down and J.P. Morgan took them over, put Chase on the end of it. Posted first quarter strong results. Bank of America is also up today. Uh, so central banks remain in the picture. Donald Trump renewing his attack at the weekend on Fed leadership, saying the U.S. stockman will be 5,000 to 10,000 points higher if it hadn't been for the actions of U.S. policymakers, like the president of America. He's also a policymaker, you know, but he was actually speaking about the Fed. Uh, saying that uh, the Fed should actually, uh, instead of um, starting to tighten, uh, starting to reduce the amount of bonds that was leading into the market. Um, I mean, in fact, the U.S. Fed has only recovered um, $500 billion uh, only uh, since it, it started issuing that easy money into the markets. Not allowed into the retail uh, level, however. It's all been enjoyed by the banks and their friends on Wall Street, all chowing down on that. Uh, the banks then had to use the money to go and buy treasuries, uh, which are government bonds, uh, government debt, U.S. government debt. 
And then the people who bought the treasuries, uh, easy treasuries, were able to take that money invested in the stock exchange. So they made sure that the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. None of it trickled down to a retail level. So when uh, Patrick Bond is speaking about uh, we need, we could do a quantitative easing in South Africa, but we'd have to do something that would reach the ordinary people. Um, it's, it's very interesting, you know, uh, if you have a look at what at the bailout of the Japanese banks in the wake of the Asian flu in 97. Um, the, the, basically, the Asian flu in 97 was started by the Japanese property bubble. Uh, you had a whole lot of politicians and businessmen getting together. Um, we've spoken about it in the show before, how you can value a piece of land. You can say, okay, this land over here is just a piece of felt. Today it's worth one and a half million rands. This is what happened with Master Bond. This is, this is actually a case study I'm taking you through, Langer Bond. Uh, this is just an empty piece of land. It's worth one and a half million rands. Okay, well, we'll sell it to ourselves. We'll sell it to a property development company. This property has just been bought by a property development company. The property development company intends putting a whole lot of expensive stuff on this land. This land is now worth 15 million. So on one day it's worth one and a half million. The very next day it's worth 15 million, simply because a whole lot of guys who already own the land have said now they, they're going to sell it to their own property company. Now you take that that, that land and uh, you go to the municipality and you get it rezoned for development purposes and then you immediately say that this land is now worth 150 million rands. Uh, then you start selling the benches in the land, in the property, which is still exactly the same piece of property, windswept uh, with felt grasses and, and a little bit of sand, you know, with the waves lapping uh, very cold, grey gray sky, bleaky outlook. Same piece of land. And like in a matter of weeks, you can have, you can have that land worth 150 million rands. And you start selling the benches into that land. And now uh, you want to use the money from the, ben the benches to start your development. So you start your development, but now building has to take time. You know, you want to get the buildings built and you have to try and sell the buildings to people. You have to find people either to rent or to buy your property like Club Mykonos and so on. And uh, so that takes time. Uh, so you're not actually making any profit. You're only going to start making profit when you know you've got the rentiers and and the buyers coming in. Uh, but right now you've got a whole lot of people buying debentures, expecting monthly interest payments. So you start taking new debenture money coming in and using that to pay the interest on the old debentures. And so you turn into a pyramid scheme. So you get a really desperate. Then you take your company to the stock exchange. You go and speak to a national minister, and you get some politicians on your side. You get your cousin. You got a cousin in the Reserve Bank. In fact, the, the register. Of, Deputy Register of Banks was uh, was related to Perrin, one of the master bond directors. It's a very nice kind of business, you know. And uh, so you go, you go, you make sure that the Reserve Bank and the, the all the authorities don't clamp down on your illegal business. You take it to the stock exchange, and uh, your your piece of land, which has hardly changed shape, is now w worth 1.5 billion. That is what property and all of this nonsense can do. Have to be very careful about these things. Well, uh, hopefully um, uh, we'll cast that small little um, pencil light of um, a little halo onto the darkness in the world. And um, 
Hopefully we've given a little bit of illumination with today's, today's show. Jazakumullah for joining us and make dua that whatever trade and activity you got up to today has been profitable and above all halal. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.